In the Christian tradition, today is the first Sunday of Advent, this four-week season of preparing to celebrate Christmas. Advent is derived from the Latin word for coming or arrival. And most years, there are four Sundays of Advent. Those of you who grew up in the Christian tradition may know this, kind of four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve. But this year is one of those calendar oddities where the fourth Sunday of Advent is Christmas Eve. So that means it's also one of those extremely rare occasions, so Sunday, December 24th, when we will not have a Sunday service here. Because it's just a little too much to be here until like one or a little after and then be back at like three to prepare for. But we will have uh, probably at five and perhaps also at seven two Christmas Eve candlelight services and more information coming on that soon. The beginning of Advent is an auspicious time to turn our attention to how and why the Bible is interpreted. To make things even more interesting, I want to invite us to uh, consider how we interpret the Bible in conversation with how we interpret the United States Constitution. These are actually quite connected things often. This sermon is inspired by two recent books. The first is titled, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? Uh, the Bible, the Museum of the Bible, and the Politics of Interpretation. It's by uh, Jill Hicks Keaton, a religious studies professor at the University of Oklahoma, and Kevin Concanon, a religious professor at the University of Southern California. Uh, the second book is How to Interpret the Constitution by the always fascinating Cass Sunstein. He's a university professor at Harvard. Some of you may remember his best-selling book from a few years ago that he co-authored with the also equally interesting uh, Richard Thaler. Uh, that Nudge is an all-time great book. Has anybody, any of you read that? Okay, well, you all should go home and read it because it's really great. Uh, but we don't have time to talk about Nudge this morning. Uh, it is real, truly great. But instead, I want to turn back the clock to one of the most famous examples of a modern progressive approach to biblical interpretation, and that is the Jefferson Bible. Some of you will recognize it by its... Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, actually, Jefferson used a razor. So he used a razor and glue to do an old-school cut-and-paste job. A long time before Microsoft Office, he did a cut-and-paste job on the Bible. So from his perspective of Enlightenment rationalism, he cut out any parts of the Bible that he deemed to be supernatural and things that probably didn't really happen and really aren't that important. Now, that's a side conversation as to how we might interpret those differently. But he then took all those remaining parts about Jesus' life and ethics and pasted them all together into a new book that he called The Life and Moral... This is in really small print in white. It's kind of a vision test for those of you. Uh, he called it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted textually because he was fancy from the Greek, Latin, French, and English. If you're curious about the details, that Smithsonian edition of the Jefferson Bible is quite affordable if you kind of want to see it, uh, uh, more of the details. And I bring up the Jefferson Bible uh, today because many theologically conservative Christians would condemn what Jefferson did as, quote, picking and choosing. Again, if you kind of grew up around these debates around the Bible, some of you did, some of you didn't, there's a lot of like, you're just picking and choosing. That's something that, that gets said. You know, only uh, paying attention to the parts of the Bible that, that you personally prefer. In their view, all parts of the Bible are equally important. Jefferson, in turn, I suspect would counter that picking and choosing is a perfectly legitimate method of interpretation. 
What I want to invite us to consider that's even more important than that is that everyone picks and chooses in regard to the Bible. Everyone's just not as super blatant about it as, as Jefferson was. If you look closely, you'll notice that anyone interpreting any sacred scripture, any text really, has parts that they emphasize more and parts that they emphasize less, whether consciously or unconsciously. Remember the title of that book I shared with you earlier, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? Many theologically conservative Christians argue that Scripture does speak for itself. They claim that they're only interpreting the so-called plain sense of Scripture, just what it obviously says. But I invite you to consider that those curators of the exhibits of the, at the Museum of the Bible in D.C., were, when they were deciding what to include in their exhibits and what to exclude from their exhibits, they were doing just as much picking and choosing as Jefferson did with his Bible. One of the people that's really helped me think more clearly about biblical interpretation is Dale Martin. He's a professor of religious studies at Yale. Some of you will recognize the name Bart Ehrman. He's written a number of popular, excellent books on, on the Christian tradition. They're best friends, so just a little kind of point of reference for those who are, uh, know that, sort of those books well. I'll never forget when I was in seminary and uh, Martin was delivering a guest lecture. He began by holding up a Bible and saying, what does the Bible say? And he repeated that. He said, what does the Bible say? And then with a kind of a flair of the dramatic and a little bit of impish, uh, you know, heresy and blasphemy, he chucked it forward and it hit the floor. Bam! You know, something you would never do. And, you know, and then he kind of leaned over and he said, what does the Bible say? <laughs> he said, and then he, of course, said, the Bible doesn't say anything. You have to read it. And how one should read the Bible or any text, that is neither obvious nor straightforward, and anyone telling you it is, is wrong. <laughs> so, uh, as with almost any human endeavor, how we interpret a text is shaped by confirmation bias a whole lot of the time, uh, as well as by our personal and historical context. And people in different contexts almost always read the same text differently. If you're not convinced of this, you're not hanging out with a diverse enough group of people, either now or historically. As a side note, uh, Martin's book, Pedagogy of the Bible, is a great accessible introduction to this perspective if you're interested in learning more. But for now, to go deeper, let's turn our attention to that aspirationally named Museum of the Bible. Has anybody been? Okay, if you've been, I'd be interested to see what you, what you think, uh, and including those of you at home. Uh, it opened in 2017. It's located only about an hour from here and only a few blocks from the National Mall. So it's among the Smithsonian Museums, uh, problematically, in my opinion. Unlike the publicly funded and curated Smithsonian's, uh, the Museum of the Bible is privately funded and privately curated by the Green family, the white evangelical Christian owners of Hobby Lobby. Some of you recognize the Green family as the ones behind that terrible Supreme Court decision, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, which ruled that privately held for-profit corporations are exempt from regulations that its owners religiously object to. In this case, the focal point was the, the conservative majority undercut the contraceptive mandate that employers have to provide contraception as part of—well, first of all, we shouldn't have employers connected to health insurance. 
Okay, but we do. And so, uh, so what it undercut was saying, well, if the employers object, they don't have to provide contraception to their uh, employees. Uh, when you see that the funders of the Museum of the Bible are also behind that infamous Supreme Court case of imposing an employer's conservative relig religiosity on their employees, you can begin to appreciate why I want to address both biblical interpretation and constitutional interpretation. There are many other related reasons, but in this one case, the connections are, are quite blatant and obvious. The Green family has a combined personal net worth of $7 billion. So when they took 500, billion, 500 million of them and invested it in the Museum of the Bible, that was, just, that was just like pocket change, you know, for them. If there were any truth in advertising, this building would not be known like sort of generically as the Museum of the Bible. It really should be called the Museum of the White Evangelical Bible. That would be truth in advertising. A museum, for instance, of the mainstream academic interpretation of the Bible would present the Bible in radically different ways. And if anyone has a spare $500 million, I would be glad to help you hook something like that up. <laughs> in the spirit of full disclosure, I have not visited the Museum of the Bible. Hopefully some of you that went, went back. It was free at first, uh, so some of you may have gone then. Uh, I have not been for at least two reasons. First, spending a lot of time around a theologically conservative interpretation of the Bible would make me some combination of very angry and very sad. And it's just not a very strong motivation to, to visit. Uh, second, admission tickets are, are now $30 the last time I checked, and I'm not giving the Green family one red cent. <laughs> so, uh, the book I showed you earlier is, however, the second full volume that I've read about the Museum of the Bible, as well as some articles. So I feel like I've done my research, I've done my due diligence to have an opinion about it. I will show you a few photos, though, because it is fancy. Uh, here's a view at night that shows off the pretty striking architecture. At the entrance, uh, the, it really, the building and the biblical text really tower over you. Uh, the interior is also fancy. Here's another uh, interior view. I think there's all white people in these photos, by the way. This is their, their official photos. Uh, there are a lot of sophisticated, immersive exhibits. Here's another. Uh, there's also beautiful views of DC. If you look out that left-hand window, you'll see the, the Capitol Rotunda. So aesthetically, the Museum of the Bible is, is strong, and overall, the, it's designed as a museum to make visitors feel good about the Bible, right? That the Bible is the good book, kind of. I don't know, <laughs> some parts. Uh, the visual experience is inviting, inspiring. There's music ra ranging from the serene to the triumphant. Uh, and, it recall and if you have ears to hear that music, you'll notice that it sounds a lot like both contemplative and joyful praise songs that you hear in more evangelical um, congregations. Uh, and also like those performed on the stage of the Museum of the Bible. They perform praise and worship songs. Notably, the Museum of the Bible tends not to draw visitors' attention to what many would say are the morally questionable parts of the Bible. Uh, there, is, there is an app uh, that will lead you through a 60 or 90 or 120-minute tour if you're in a rush, but many visitors spend either a half day or a full day, and the organizers estimate it would actually take 72 hours to watch and read and experience everything in the Museum of the Bible.
But here's the thing. You could spend literally three full days, three 24-hour periods uh, at the Museum of the Bible, and that white evangelical bias would mean you would learn still next to nothing about feminist interpretation of the Bible, about queer interpretation of the Bible, about liberation theology, you know, all and so much more. That's all just the tip of the iceberg of all of the ways of interpreting the Bible that are central to more modern and progressive ways of engaging sacred texts. If you're interested in learning more, uh, two good introductions to the truly wild world of biblical interpretation are To Each Its Own Meaning. That's actually one I read in seminary. Uh, and then one that just came out, uh, kind of its sequel, New Meanings for Ancient Texts. And these kind of walk you through the, I mean, probably, I don't know, 50 ways of inter different methods for interpreting the Bible and give you examples and all of that. Really interesting books. So if there were but world enough in time, uh, I would love to spend a few weeks going into depth about interpretive methods, and, uh, but for now, um, I'll say this. Uh, I've been in this biblical interpretation game a long time. Some of you know I grew up Southern Baptist, that prior to becoming a UU in 2012, uh, I was uh, served as a minister in progressive Christian congregations for a decade. And the more I've learned, the more I've come to see that there are just so many ways to interpret the Bible or any sacred text beyond the exclusivistic white evangelical worldview that in this case dominates the Museum of the Bible. Because there are so many options for interpreting biblical texts, the one sentence that most represents my current view is, again, one I learned from Dale Martin, that, that Yale biblical scholar I introduced to you earlier. Martin challenges us individually and collectively that you are responsible. Because there are so many ways to interpret the Bible, you're responsible for the one you choose. You are responsible, he says, for the truth the goodness, the morality, and the social effect of how you interpret the Bible or any other text. To, to explain further, he likes to joke that texts don't mean people mean with texts. In other words, texts don't have meaning in and of themselves. Texts don't mean. Instead, we co-create meaning as we read texts within a context. We co-create, so when, when he says that text don't mean people mean with text, he means we create meaning with text, but notice he's, there's a pun there, right? We're also mean to each other with texts, right? Texts don't mean people mean with texts. Because we, the reader, again, have choices about how we co-create meaning with a text within a given context, that's why Martin believes, again, that you are responsible for the truth, goodness, morality, and social effect of how you interpret the Bible or any other text. So if your reading is causing harm, it's really important to pause and consider whether you have truly tried out all the interpretive options to cause either less harm or actually to cause more good. In light of all that we know in the 21st century, it's just increasingly difficult to make the case that the Bible made me do it. You know, that's kind of the other side of you're responsible. I'm not responsible. You know, the Bible made me do it. The Bible, you know, in many years, I'm just many years past believing people who blame their sexism, their homophobia, their Christian supremacy, or any other, you know, bigotry on the Bible. You just need to learn to interpret better. You need to interpret more generously, more wisely, more lovingly. Sadly, $500 million later, the Museum of the Bible is of little help in teaching visitors more skillful, more modern, more multicultural ways of interpreting. 
As promised, I want to just briefly bring in the Constitution, especially with this rise of what's sometimes called Christian nationalism, this idea that you know, the U.S. was founded to be, which it wasn't a Christian nation or it should be a Christian nation, Christian nationalism. There's a significant number of folks whose white evangelical reading of the Bible is all tied up with their white evangelical reading of the Constitution, and too many of them are wearing Supreme Court justice robes. And I, for one, I am just not here for their desire to cosplay The Handmaid's Tale on a national scale. I am not here for it. There is a strong correlation between those who claim that Scripture speaks for itself in a way that ends up conveniently mirroring the pre-existing values of white evangelicals and constitutional originalists who simplistically claim that we just need to follow the so-called original public meaning of the Constitution, which again, almost always ends up mirroring the pre-existing values of theologically conservative Christians. If you go back and look at the founders, they were fighting about the meaning of the Constitution from the beginning. There is no simple original public meaning of the Constitution or anything. It's diversity all the way down. The writer Anne Lamott has wisely observed, you can safely assume that you've created God, however you understand that word. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> That's not about sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's about God in the hands of angry sinners, right? Likewise, the whole constitutional theory of originalism is arguably just a mask for what the conservative commentator William F. Buckley Jr. famously said is the bedrock impulse behind modern conservative politics, to stand athwart history yelling stop. He's saying that's what we're really all about. Now, sometimes, don't get me wrong, there is conservative politics in the sort of best sense of the word. I think of like Wendell Berry and like conserving beautiful things and traditions. But other times, conservatism, if we say that quiet part out loud about what Buckley means when he says we're trying to stand athwart history yelling stop, what that really means is all you women stop wanting equal pay for equal work. And all you people of color stop wanting to dismantle white privilege. And all you gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender folks, you know, stop stop wanting uh, equal marriage rights, all you environmentalists, stop wanting us to care about science that wasn't known about, you know, in when the Constitution was written. Well, guess what? Like, can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, contrary to cynical bad faith arguments that originalism is the only legitimate way to interpret the Constitution, they're just taking all the fun out of fundamentalism, right? Uh, like, uh, there are progressive schools of constitutional interpretation that include, you know, democracy reinforcing judicial review, moral readings, and more. I don't have time to get into all that. If you're interested, this is a really great book, um, We the People, A Progressive Reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century by Erwin Chemerinsky. If you look back, I think in 2018, we, we had a Sunday service focused on this back when this book first came out. He's the dean of the University of California at Berkeley Law School. Uh, as to which views prevail at any given time, the, the late William Brennan, a long-serving United States Supreme Court justice, used to ask his new law clerks every year, what is the most important rule of constitutional law? What is the one most important rule of constitutional law? He'd watch them fumble around with the wrong answers for a while, and they would hold out one hand with five fingers outstretched. He said, the most important rule is five, because that's how many votes you need for a majority on a nine-vote court. I know, I hate, I hate to be all Nietzsche, like, 
you know, will to power. But like, uh, in our current system, which needs to be changed, that's another sermon, five votes means that one side's interpretation is at least temporarily the law of the land, even if it won by merely one vote against the strong dissent of four equally smart justices. And that's the tell, right? All those justices, they're all wicked smart. Right, So when you have like a 5-4 decision, it's not like one, they just happen to have one more vote. It's not about who's smarter, right? Who had, they're both using interpretive strategies. And so where does that leave us? Well, to me, one takeaway is for progressives to at least be forthright and clear and unapologetic that there are open-hearted and open-minded ways of interpreting every text. We don't have to like grant originalists uh, the your, the plain sense of meaning, like don't, don't let conservatives outline the playing field for you. There are other ways of playing the game, from the Bible to the Constitution, any other sacred scripture. For we UUs, uh, I think that looks like interpreting texts in ways that reflect our UU values. Many of you have seen this graphic that maybe, and with there's an interpretive piece of text, that may be replacing our principles and sources as soon as June, and we'll see how General Assembly goes. But what I think this um, graphic shows us is it means seeking methods of interpreting text, the Bible, the Constitution, what have you, in ways that increase justice, that increase interdependence, that increase equity and transformation and pluralism and generosity, and most centrally, love. The road to turn our dreams into deeds, to build the more multicultural world, the beloved community that we dream about, that will not be a short one. But I urge us to remember the successes of the past, which were often hard won. The civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the LGBT rights movement, the disability rights movement, the environmentalist movement, and so much more. Those all remind us that we can do hard things because they have been done in the past and we can do them again. And I'm grateful to be on that journey with all of you. Please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together, holding this in our heart. Hymn 1017 in your teal hymnal, building a new way. <laughs>